Welcome to Infrequencies, the ICA podcast. My name is Amrit and I work at the ICA as a public advisor. Whilst deep diving the ICA's audio archive, I was drawn to a recording from 2019, part of the Politics of Pleasure, which was a series of black feminist programs exploring pleasure as a politics of refusal. In this podcast episode, we join Mumtaza Mary as she presents her essay, Black Feminist Transference, on pleasure and powerlessness, followed by a conversation between former ICA assistant curator, Ifani Awachi. Mary explores the slipperiness of female power, agency, and identification. She touches on the pleasures black women experience in the symbolism and imagery of powerful figures such as Beyonce and Michelle Obama, So what happens when powerful black women use their positionality to push their identity as cultural product or representational symbol? And how useful is this for the interests of working class black women? This talk was recorded live at the ICA on the 9th of November, 2019. Enjoy. I was invited to sort of have the prompt of an essay that touches upon themes of power, female agency, and identification and this was like a really really difficult essay to write I've been meaning to write it for a very long time because it's an essay that mirrors some of the conversations that I've been having with the black women that I call like friends and family and it's a conversation about our identification with powerful black women both powerful black women in politics powerful black women that belong to the celebrity class and just the contention and the conundrum that we sort of experience in identifying with people who don't necessarily see themselves in us and these moments of tension because I see myself as somebody who takes pleasure in the imagery and the symbolism of powerful black women. You can see in some of the slideshow I've got many definitions of powerful black women and women who are also disempowered who happen to be black as well and artists who speak to that. But I wanted to touch upon key figures and weave them in and sort of try to understand what it means for a black woman to have agency because I think sometimes in mainstream feminist discourse there is this sort of, this way that black women are looked at as sort of devoid of agency. So we're not able to be complicit in some of the systems that use us as sort of like window dressing sometimes. The title of this essay is called Black Feminist Transference on Pleasure and powerlessness. A velvet-voiced woman serenades a swaying couple under the flash of cameras and the gaze of millions. The shimmer of her crystal droplet earrings is matched only by the tears already collecting in her eyes. The dancing couple are effervescently joyous. With every step, they herald the birth of a supposedly nascent nation, ushering in its latest and most desperately anticipated chapter. This must be true because everyone says so. The man is the Hawaiian-born son of a white American anthropologist, mother, and a Kenyan economist father who met in a Russian language class at the University of Hawaii. The woman is a Gullah-descended daughter of a Chicago water plant employee, father, and secretary mother. Both are held captive by the crooning background of Beyoncé Gazelle Carter-Knowles. It is the evening of January 20th, 2009. On the night of Barack Obama's inauguration as the 44th President of the United States, the Obamas have their first dance as President and First Lady at the Neighbourhood Inaugural Ball. Beyoncé has been handpicked to provide a rendition of the Glenn Miller classic, At Last, later more famously covered by a heart-ringing Etta James. In her post-performance interview, 
Beyonce is endearingly overwhelmed. She's tearful and teetering, displaying a rare moment of uncharacteristic abandon. She tells ABC News that singing at this historic moment has been the most important day of her life. At last he is here. It was all worth it. Her smile is watery, but her belief is absolute. Ten years on, the hazy afterglow of Obama fervour has arguably dissipated into the collective fog of contested myth-making. Was it all worth it? Beyoncé's statement has acquired a question for so many. Our own era presents us with a thorny gift of hindsight, as well as a more democratised and often digital avenues for black people outside the commentariat and celebrity classes to voice their unfiltered assessments of the Obama years. Grand narratives have been incessantly destabilised, unclogged from their watertight assurances. Nostalgia-drenched pines to the Obamas continue to service and unify critics of the Trump administration. These interpretations jockey for dominance against the disillusionment experienced and vocalised by black communities both within and outside the US. To remember things differently is to rain on someone else's meticulously orchestrated parade. The poet Lucille Clifton knew this feeling. They ask me to remember, she wrote, but they want me to remember their memories, and I keep on remembering mine. Much has been said and written about the Obama presidency, a tumultuous eight years where the regime of police violence reached its zenith of hypervisibility and a mass international movement for the rights of black life erupted under a black president. Economic disparities between white and black Americans swelled, along with AFRICOM's military expansion under a general climate of mass deportations, particularly of Haitian asylum seekers, extrajudicial assassinations and indiscriminate drone strikes across the Middle East, South Asia and Africa. Legacies haunt as much as they inspire. In many ways, we remain anchored to that moment, fossilised in the amber of its promise. Like dancing lovers, we are mesmerised by the reflected image of ourselves. Was it all worth it? How do we measure worthiness? To decipher the worth of a thing is to clinically put it into relation with other things. Worth, like power, is a capricious and slippery web of value judgments, given the fleshiness of communal endorsement. Whose worth is amplified, exaggerated and celebrated at the expense of a larger collective or community? The demarcation between increased vulnerability to or protection from the daily horrors of racial capitalism is often the difference between a life lived and a life prematurely shortened. Worth is hoarded by the few and socially reproduced by the rest of us. Its adjudication is a throbbing bloody heart of neoliberal logic. Sell yourself until there is nothing left to sell. Market value as liberation. The triple whammy of relentless extraction, competitive accumulation and generalised alienation. Within global systems that stratify human life, worthiness is rarely earned or deserved. Worthiness is a metric which prioritises individual achievement over collective enfranchisement. When you have been conditioned to see yourself as unworthy, it is understandable to seek comfort in the perceived worthiness of others, especially when they look and present as you do. Black womanhood can be overwrought with this particular kind of loneliness. Ours is a subjectivity that enriches even as it is strange. Our struggle as black women, to quote the philosopher critic Sylvia Winter, concerns the displacement of the genre of the human, of man, of which the black population group, men, women and children, must function as the negation. Considering how much the self-actualization of others too often relies on our own negation is a terrible prospect to bear. Still, we bear it. 
With grit, humor, savvy, finesse, refusal, and a heightened sensitivity to the power dynamics which structure our lives, we maneuver around and often outwit the curtailed visions others have for us. To be a black woman is to nourish your own garden of the self, to construct an inner world beyond the diminished horizons of the one we are forced to creatively navigate. We are the afterthoughts to the afterthoughts that are black men. The misogynistic trappings of chivalry that white feminism spent centuries fighting to escape have always eluded us. There are no black distressed damsels, no genteel fainting rooms built for black women with nervous Victorian dispositions. Vulnerability is a luxury we cannot afford. We give care, but rarely receive it. Contemporary intersectional discourse serves as an entry point for some black women into an arena of recognition. Recognition, after all, is the lifeblood of relationality at its most superficial. In an imaginatively impoverished world, it remains the surest way to be counted, to have one's pain acknowledged. The political demands of black women are only heard if they are made within a register of victimhood or powerlessness. If we are loud about our exclusion, we may be listened to. Black feminisms are then collapsed into cohesive, totalizing projects with a single aim, to function as a corrective for the missteps of liberal white middle-class feminism. This is intersectionality, trademarked, as championed by carceral feminists, self-aggrandizing politicians, cynical military recruitment campaigns, and slick corporations. If there's a murderous, exploitative institution you wish to revamp, throw a black woman at it. Interrogating the costs of our inclusion into the halls of power is not as easily embraced as black feminism's concerned with the business, and it is a business, of window dressing and diversification. Yet, whether or not others want to listen, black women are having these conversations, these conversations about our differences. Recognition is a profoundly human desire. Black women, like anyone else on this planet, can't be blamed for seeking it. We too want to be seen. We want to witness our likeness celebrated and glorified, to see people like us being unashamedly and unreservedly loved. We delight in the surrogate successes of other black women. That this natural desire is so routinely denied is a monstrous inhumanity which permeates our psychic health. There is little to celebrate in our exclusion from the gilded cage of womanhood as a genre and theoretical category. Yet, if our inclusion relies upon abandoning criticality, then perhaps it isn't worth its price of admission. Yes, we are not protected, but we are not infantile in thought either. In her 1992 essay collection, Black Looks, Race and Representation, Bell Hooks defines the oppositional gaze. This is a critical gaze of agency, where black people can look back and at one another, naming what we see. Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye is utilized by Hooks as an examination of the black woman as spectator. In the novel, Miss Pauline Breedlove is a movie-obsessed poor maid who is at her happiest attending the picture show. She wistfully gazes upon images of white men taking such good care of they women, and they all dressed in big clean houses with bathtubs right in the same room with the toilet. The trouble with even the best films is that they ultimately end. Miss Pauline is left sitting in the dark. The spell has ended. But it made coming home hard is the character's thinking realisation, as she returns to another day's hard toil. Hooks examines this critical regression through identification. At the end of it all, she reminds us, we can only come home to ourselves. If, in Morrison's literary landscape, it is possible to identify with glittering filmic representations of power, then it is little wonder why the real thing, the living, breathing, prospering vision of a powerful black woman, can so transfix and animate us.
The Trinidadian-born journalist and activist Claudia Jones spoke to the potential of black women's oppositionality in her 1949 essay, An End to the Neglect of the Problems of Negro Women. The bourgeoisie is fearful of the militancy of the Negro woman, and for good reason, she argued. The capitalists know, far better than many progressives seem to know, that once women undertake action, the militancy of the whole Negro people, and thus of the anti-imperialist coalition, is greatly enhanced. Jones considered the role of black women within trade unions, which largely failed to organise black domestic workers, who were unprotected by union standards and labour legislation. Despite their substantial numbers, black women were rarely given prominent roles within trade unions. Her analysis was explicitly anti-capitalist and anti-imperialist, linking the Scottsboro case to the struggle of Ethiopians against Italian fascism. Jones led an oppositional life. After migrating with her family to Harlem in 1922, she joined the Young Communist League at 18. By the age of 25, she was chairing its national council. Charged with violating the Anti-Communist Smith Act in 1951, Jones was imprisoned and later deported to London, where she became the editor of the West Indian Gazette and founded the first Notting Hill Carnival in 1959. Hounded out of the United States, Britain's Caribbean population offered her the kind of community she could never find in the parochially racist Communist Party of Great Britain, whose members had branded her as difficult. Surveilled throughout her life, her un-American activities were recorded by the FBI in a 300-plus page dossier. Long after her premature death, there were efforts to erase her legacy from public memory. Yet, her life remains an example of what it means to theorise and organise from below. She saw herself in the working-class black communities which nurtured her, and they saw themselves in her. Oppositionality offers alternatives. It draws from the deep well of knowledge we sometimes mistake for a burden. It is, like responsibility, demanding. It is grown. It is not easy to sell. It, unlike low-hanging liberal platitudes, does not deny black women agency by sanctifying them. Listen to black women, our allies cry, even as they deprive us of our contradiction, our differences, our varied allegiances. Last November gave us a textbook example of such flattening, with the near-universal mainstream praise for Michelle Obama's memoir, Becoming. By March, Becoming had sold over 10 million copies. Michelle Obama embarked on a national sold-out book tour. Its success, as Kianga Yamhata Taylor's review detailed, indicates how well it echoed our thoroughly conservative times, as well as the potency of the Obama brand. Becoming is riddled with the discredited politics of racial uplift. It views racism as an optical, not a systemic and often fatal reality. We are told that racism can be overcome through education, hard work, and a reverential belief in meritocracy. Suspicion and stereotyping, Obama writes, can run both ways. As Taylor contends, becoming anecdotally equates black people's distrust of white America with the racial fears white Americans have used to justify everything from lynchings and mob violence to economic redlining. I've been held up as the most powerful woman in the world and taken down as an angry black woman. Obama pulls us into her clucking mother hen knowingness. I've wanted to ask my detractors, she says, which part of that phrase matters to them the most? Is it angry or black or woman? Clearly, she is intimately aware of the tropes plaguing black womanhood. Angry, black and woman are categories she's willing to interrogatively put on the table. Power, however, is resolutely kept off it. While it is true that right-wing vitriol marred Obama's entry into public life, the racism she has faced does not discount how she chooses to wield the power she still holds. 
Responding to conservative media's depictions of her as a militant and unladylike ball breaker, Obama has worked hard to soften her image. As Flotus, she tackled child literacy and obesity and worked with military families. Marriage and motherhood were her focus, as she often reminded the public. Becoming is the natural culmination of this largely successful effort to soften the image of a woman who was once advised to diminish herself so that her husband could win the presidential nomination. Ascribing to such bootstrap black feminisms lends credibility to the idea that all making it entails is some elbow grease and a dose of aspiration. Or, as Obama puts it, if you don't get out there and define yourself, you'll be quickly and inaccurately defined by others. In a historical period where upward mobility is no longer guaranteed, if it ever was for some people, stagnated wages and mercilessly gutted public services, this is cruel indifference couched in the language of resilience. Some of us are externally defined by our material conditions, and we shouldn't blame ourselves for it. What do such feminisms say about black working class women who work the hardest and have the least to show for it? It was these very black women who, were, who filled out stadiums for a chance to hear Michelle Obama speak, spending their hard-earned money attending her tour dates. When Michelle Obama's Southside journey finally came to London's South Bank, black British women did the same. On social media, some voiced their reservations about ticket prices and the general inaccessibility of an event live-streamed on BBC News. Others decried how unaffordability and the prioritisation of South Bank Centre's exclusive membership would ensure an audience comprised of mostly middle-class white women. What remained unspoken was perhaps too painful to consider. Maybe all this pomp and circumstance wasn't really for us. Had we personally over-identified with a woman who was as much a brand and purveyor of US interests as a fellow sister of the struggle? Do the people we see ourselves in see themselves in us? Bell Hooks courted this provocation in Moving Beyond Pain, her essay on Beyonce's Lemonade album. Viewers who like to suggest Lemonade was created solely or primarily for black female audiences are missing the point, she states. Commodities, irrespective of their subject matter, are made, produced and marketed to entice any and all consumers. Beyonce's audience is the world, and that world of business and money-making has no colour. Years on, there's much in that essay I don't agree with. Hooks is heavy-handed, even dogmatic, in her desire for resolution. Lemonade's message is rife with contradictions, but I think this messiness is what made it so emotionally resonant. I do, however, agree with Hooks' identification of what she calls a conventional stereotypical framework where the black woman is always a victim. This is the primary lens through which even the most vocal supporters of black women operate. As disempowering as this gaze is, there are black women who cleverly utilise it for their own gain. There is serious money to be made in superficially rehashing dating woes, Lena Dunham's latest racial gaffes, desirability politics and hair debates for an audience that will pat you on the back for bravely sharing your pain, but will not actively work to undermine the structures which cause it. As early as 2014, Hooks had infamously branded Beyonce, or at least elements of the Beyonce brand, as terrorist and anti-feminist. Referring to the global megastar's time cover as part of a mainstream visual culture's assault on feminism and young girls, her comments were made during a panel conversation at the New School entitled, Are You Still a Slave? Liberating the Black Female Body. If you watch the video on YouTube, you can pinpoint the exact moment when the air is sucked out of the room. Audible gasps rise and fall like punctured balloons. There is nervous laughter. 
Outside the gathering, a wider debate raged on in black feminist circles. Op-eds were hastily tied up, typed up, essays were published, prominent writers and academics conducted emergency roundtables, such as the 11-person discussion featured in Feministing. Though Hooks's comments betrayed an ungenerous suspicion of femme presentation and hark back to the throwback boogeymen of glossy magazines and video games, the reaction they inspired was equally telling. To some, it was inconceivable that a black feminist would, if hyperbolically, critique the constructed image of a black cultural juggernaut. I found the whole thing a rare example of a worthwhile discussion occurring online. Both women are respected and admired pioneers within their respective fields. Both enjoy varying forms of power and influence. It shouldn't matter whether one agrees with hooks or not. The knee-jerk urge to avoid divergence of opinion was predictably stifling. To defend one figure was to be beholden to another, a zero-sum game with no winners. It was almost as if, having reduced bell hooks to tote bag motivationals, Tumblr reblogs and women's studies aphorisms, commentators were now unfamiliar with the version of bell hooks which now stood before them, the complex and often frustrating version that had been there all along, having spent decades critiquing our deeply anti-intellectual society. People have to be made to understand that they cannot look for salvation anywhere but to themselves. The unparalleled strategist and grassroots organiser Ella Baker spoke to what happens when individuals and our identification with them eclipse movements. Baker looked towards the community of women who had raised her, from a grandmother who had been enslaved and whipped for refusing to marry the man chosen for her by a slave master, to the mother who had provided food, shelter and support to vulnerable neighbours. She described her upbringing as one which stressed that your relationship to human beings was far more important than your relationship to the amount of money that you made. From the 1920s to her death in 1986, Baker mobilised working-class black people through organisations such as the Young Negroes Cooperative League, the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. She warned young activists of succumbing to the seductive pull of individualism, remaining critical of the charismatic leadership model. There is also the danger in our culture, she said, that because a person is called upon to give public statements and is acclaimed by the establishment, such a person gets to the point of believing he is the movement. Baker was adamant that no one could singularly represent or reflect the hopes and desires of a mass movement. A strong people would not need strong leaders. Baker keenly understood power as an accumulated resource within an organisation. If it was too weighted towards an individual activist or celebrity, the movement would suffer. She understood the desire of the underrepresented to look outwards for affirmation, but did not excuse this impulse. Pitting black women against each other shouldn't be the goal. What should be apparent at our current political juncture is how varied and antagonistic our freedom dreams can be. We do not always desire or even agree upon the same paths to liberation. As more and more of us attain greater access to power, our ability to legitimise and bolster the systems which disempower other black women increases. Identification can be a source of pleasure, but it can also blunt our necessary criticality. Dreams Are Colder Than Death, Arthur Jaffer's 2014 experimental documentary, opens with a stark warning. We are going to lose this gift of black culture unless we are careful. Hortense Spillis' voice is laced with contemplative disquiet. She goes on, the gift that is given to people who didn't have a prayer. 
That is, and what has always been, at stake. Our culture of generative dissidence and intellectual errantry. One where we are critically oriented towards defence, with our backs up against the wall. What kind of conversations would we have if our creative energies were not bound up in reacting against or defending the already powerful from white supremacist domination? Would we continue to ask the same questions or even seek the same neat answers? In her essay, The Idea of Black Culture, Spillers poses her own series of questions. What happens when the last bastions of critique fall away? When the imagined moral credibility of black now translates into an enablement of the most repressive practices among the world democracies today, end quote. Spillers posits that, in a sense, if there is no black culture, or no longer black culture because it has succeeded, then we need it now. And if that is true, then perhaps black culture, as the reclamation of the critical edge, as one of those vantages from which it might be spied and no longer predicated on race, has yet to come. Spillers is anticipating, not uncritically celebrating, an unrealized black culture. The same could arguably be said for a black critical culture, one which more readily identifies with the disempowered within our communities than moneyed starlets, charismatic leaders, and shrewd politicians. We may be able to walk and chew gum at the same time, but increasingly it seems like we are not very good at it. In our cultural debates and coalitions, it is increasingly clear who and what we prioritise. Time and time again, our inclination to foreground the already powerful limits our ability to imagine radically. Identification then becomes a substitute for action, especially action that centres the most vulnerable in our communities. Publicly and privately, black women are demanding more in how we envision liberation. We are asserting our agency and refusing narratives that flatten us into cheerleaders, accessories and accomplices. We are dictating the terms of our identification with or against power. Black women have been the loudest critics of politicians such as presidential hopeful Kamala Harris and Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot. Renewed interest in the Central Park Five case, fueled by the Ava DuVernay-directed and Oprah-produced Netflix series, When They See Us, led to a reassessment of Oprah's previous condemnation of the wrongly accused men. In 2002, Oprah had interviewed the jogger. The woman at the heart of the case would later regret this interview, one where Oprah had asked her what she had been doing out that late at night. Black women took to the digital sphere to question the sensationalism she had earlier fed into, and her retroactive support of the Central Park Five now that they had been exonerated after spending years in prison. Conversations such as these chip away at the cult of celebrity to examine how the powerful wield their power. Our pleasures are inflected with responsibility. We are capable of grasping both at the same time without abandoning our black feminist tradition of oppositionality. We deserve an abundance of alternatives. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mamtaza. It's such a rich essay. Following along this time, I've noticed so much more that struck me. So maybe we can just kind of start. I want to start by saying Beyonce's net worth is $470 million. My net worth is probably 470 pounds. <laughs> but still, I, especially after homecoming, find myself becoming more and more a member of the Beehive, more and more defending Beyonce um, as a performer, um, and also defending what she seems to represent, as, as people say in this current moment, um, in terms of her outspokenness about, outspokenness, we can get into that, about race um, 
and politics through her performances of allegiance to the Black Panthers and um, through, you know, using the aesthetics of New Orleans and things like that, starting to make these more outspoken statements that were taken to be political. But that seems to be at the heart of what you're talking about. What do I get, really, from putting my energy into these debates about how great Beyonce is? Um, as much as her music gives me pleasure and her style gives me pleasure and her success gives me pleasure. Yeah, so maybe we can start there. Um, yeah, getting straight into it. Um, <laughs> so I think for me, like, obviously, um, I... First of all, Beyonce taught me English. That's the first thing I have to say, because... <laughs> Um, when I came back to, because I was I was born in England, but then I like was raised like partially in the Middle East. So when I came back, like my English was like shaky. So Destiny's Child albums taught me English. So um, that's something like I'll always be grateful for. But just beyond that, it's almost um, I think for me, I wasn't really interested in like the cultural worth because Beyonce is actually quite. I mean, of all the symbols in this essay, she's really different from Michelle Obama in terms of like Beyonce. You can argue for the cultural worth of like what her symbolism means, but with someone like Michelle Obama it's like there's actual like state power involved here in a way that isn't involved with like a celebrity but I think with in terms of like all these women even as they sort of bring us pleasure and there's nothing wrong with them bringing us is it completely natural and human yeah. inclination there's nothing wrong with that um, especially for people who are so underrepresented and, and derided globally so I think for me it's more about how these figures choose to wield the power that they have. No one's forcing, as you saw recently, no one's forcing the Obamas to make disparaging comments about activists today. No one's got a gun to their head, but they're still doing it. No one's forcing them to say all the things that they said about Ferguson activists, mm -hmm. but they're still doing it, right? And that there's real power there. So I feel like what we sort of have to interrogate is there's always going to be this limit between what we feel like they represent versus what they actually can do for the collective because they're individuals ultimately no matter how rich or powerful or wealthy they are they will never be substitutes for mass movements and I feel like that's something we have to get through our heads collectively. Absolutely and I love the way that you frame the space between these individuals and our identification with them as a loneliness. I'd never thought about it that way before just identifying with the subject and yet being isolated from that subject. I think I have an answer for this as well, but I wanted to talk about why it's important that we as Black women avoid that kind of loneliness. Thinking about my own experience and the experiences of Black women more broadly, we're already so isolated in so many different ways. It seems really critical to avoid, or it seems especially painful to think that we're experiencing a form of loneliness in this kind of over-identification. I mean, yeah, it can. I think, like, I mean, it's it's a very particular kind of loneliness. Um, uh, but I think I mentioned also in the essay just the idea of, like, it's also a source of knowledge yep. that can also feel like a burden or can be a burden at the same time. But for me personally, I feel like the subjectivity of black women is such an enriching position. Mm -hmm. I honestly do. I feel like it's just to theorize from that position is to just, it's to just see through a lot of, basically the bullshit to cut through it and if we collectively sort of see it as a position from which like the working class black woman subjectivity particularly rather than perhaps over identifying with symbols because ultimately these are symbols I mean and you know that that classic Fanny Lou Hamer quote you know I'm tired of symbolic things we are fighting for our lives and that's what it boils down to I'm not a cold-hearted contrarian you know I I very much like enjoy the visual aspect 
and the sort of generative sort of emotional resonance of symbolism. I love to see like, you know, I'll cheer for maybe like a Somali politician, whatever, getting uh, getting elected in Minnesota and it's got really nothing to do with me and it's not affecting my life at all in Kilburn, but <laughs> I would be like, yay, a Somali sister's doing it big. But mm-hmm. at the same time, ultimately, if I find out that like her politics are trash, yeah. suddenly I feel like, okay, maybe I am over-identifying. What does it really mean for her to be? Mm-hmm. Like, what does this say? It doesn't really say anything concrete. Yeah. It's only because I've been minoritized in the society that that's a big deal for me. Mm-hmm. But this society isn't the world. That's it. Mm-hmm. Wow, so many places we could go from there because I really like the way that you're, you're kind of making a link between that identifying with these symbols isn't the problem, but the fact that that over-identification can lead us to be less critical. And also making that distinction between or naming the fact that part of the reason maybe why we identify with these symbols so strongly is because we need that power because we are marginalized. But in this context, we, you know, May not be mar- we may not have been marginalized in the same way if you had grown up in Somalia and I had grown up in um, Nigeria, where I'm from, but maybe we might have been. So yeah, it's interesting how slippery these things are, as I think you say so well. This may relate, or it may be an association I'm making, but it makes me think of the Bell Hooks and Beyonce debacle, where I think the conversation as I remember it, and as you put it so well also, was about how unbelievable it seemed to us as black women maybe on twitter and these other spaces that we suddenly had to pick a side between these two really really prominent really important black women black cultural figures but then you point out that it shouldn't have been an issue that shouldn't have been the question and and i think what we were left with was was a lack of there, we should have had a wealth of of options and a wealth of kind of positions to that conversation, but we weren't. And we were left just thinking, oh, but all black women need to agree. We need to be on the same side. And either Bell Hooks has to be wrong and Beyonce is right or the other way around. So it makes me think that through this over-identification, we even are left with like a kind of poverty of criticism in, in our own spaces, if we can even call that kind of conversation our own space. What was interesting to me when that moment happened was how it was almost like code red. Mm. There was like this international like emergency crisis meeting being held across like for in black feminist circles, exactly. which I found really strange because I thought like Bell Hooks has always been like oppositional. Like what yeah. did you expect her to say? Um, that kind of thing. Ha- having said that, you know, this was around the time she was cozying up to Emma Watson. So it looked really bookie. <laughs> I mean, it was just this idea of um, oppositionality or in terms of like um, what people were picking up on in her essay, Moving Beyond Pain, was super interesting because no one in all the essays or roundtables or whatever that I read, mm-hmm. no one had picked up on the point where she said, Beyonce's audience is the world. It's not mm-hmm. just black women. And I feel like people were that point specifically i feel like people did not want to address it because it it was too painful yeah because this thing that we this symbol this woman that we hold so dear and close to our bosom is mm-hmm. actually a money making machine yeah and she's everybody's yeah with with machine. a team of 
hundreds, one can imagine, behind her. And the idea that this intimacy that we're craving and clinging to is one-sided, is perhaps mm. a, too terrible for a lot of black women to bear. And that was why I think a lot of people did not speak to that part at all. They just mm. focused on, well, actually, you know, she's saying that Beyonce isn't necessarily radical or that there's nothing, there's nothing um, empowering about returning to a man who cheated on you and weakness shouldn't be celebrated. So was, they were just almost like, you know, tinkering around the edges of her argument, but not cutting to the real edge of it, which is she was considering it as a cultural product, mm -hmm. not just as a representative symbol. Yeah. And it's both at the same time. Absolutely. And I also, and we talked before about um, that idea that you can make something f just for black women um, because we have, uh, Toni Morrison said in a talk at um, the ICA that, um, she can't decide who her readers are. And that may have caused me some loneliness as a Toni Morrison reader to, to hear because I, you know, we all know that she very much wrote to center the black female subject and speak from that position. But she did say, you know, I can't decide who reads the book. I can just put it out there in the world. Which leads me to think about, are there any black women writers who are writing for and not just about a black female audience, a black female reader. Will we ever have an artist or a writer who deliberately centers us as the kind of the target of their circulation? And you are a writer yourself. I wonder if you think about this and whether you would write for a black women audience in particular, if you think that's possible. It's a difficult question because it speaks to sort of the existential problem, at, if you can call it a problem, at the heart of sort of like black being mm -hmm. in terms of what Denise Ferreira de Silva calls like the intramural, so intramural spaces and how she writes about that. What is a black space, right? Like if, if this room was just full of black people, a lot of us would still be mentally colonized. Yeah. So is it really a room full of black people? Right. Right. And this is something like a lot of people, I mean, lots of people in black studies and black uh, radical sort of uh, feminist traditions speak about this, like the idea of like uh, James Baldwin saying, you know, killing the white man in his head. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's this idea of like, just because a space is black, is it really intramural? Right. Or are we always guarding ourselves? Are we always second guessing ourselves? Are we always necessarily not speaking or not saying things or not um, speaking things into existence because we're always afraid? Right. And we're always sort of self-censoring because just because there's like no white people in the room doesn't mean that black people are not censoring themselves in that room. Absolutely correct. So I don't I mean, I, I try to work towards an idea of the intramural. I don't believe it quite exists, but I am a bit of a nihilist. So there is that. But the thing is, I believe that there is the hope or the promise of the intramural, the time where I can speak or black people can speak completely freely. Um, and you see that, I think one of the cases when you see that is, I mean, I think we all see the tragedies of like when black people are shot and then you have cue straight away, let's speak to the mother of this child. Yeah. And you know, in that moment, that mother can't say what she really wants to say. She wants to say like, fuck these pigs. Yeah. That's what she wants to say. But mm -hmm. she can't say because the minute she says that, she's not a respectable figure. Right. She will be like live streamed everywhere for being the mother that didn't forgive. Mm -hmm. So what does it mean to have an intramural space where we are not policed and we're not policing ourselves? Yeah. And in that case, I don't feel there's black writers that can do that, especially in like the white publishing industries. There's no black writer that's just writing for black people, but there's black writers that are writing for the promise of that tomorrow. Hmm. 
that's what I truly believe and that's what I hope to be and one of the ways I try to do is I don't insult black people's intelligence mm. right I believe we're, we're worthy of criticism my ideal dream would be like I mean if you look at you know television or media or the commentariat it's like a specific kind of black mm-hmm. mostly liberal kind of politics my dream would be just to see a million kinds of black people just mm-hmm. arguing it out mm-hmm. and I'd include everyone in it like hoteps can join in Okay. right like you know I mean seriously like sexists can join in because they're out there you know yeah. they're there already so yeah. let everyone join in and we can sort of I mean that's the only version of marketplace of the ideas that I believe I mean not the, yeah. the white version that's the version I believe so that's hopefully we can build towards it intramural but I don't think it quite exists yet yeah what you say is so true we're human beings you know we're allowed to be sexist unfortunately we're allowed to be hotaps unfortunately but that is more representative of who black people are than you know being, either being a, a Belle or a Beyonce or a Michelle. <laughs> I was thinking about what you were saying about the intramural and what you say about vulnerability. And um, that line of the essay, vulnerability is a luxury we cannot afford, hit me right here. I mean, softness is not something we're allowed. It's not something, being soft is not something we're often allowed um, as a black woman, as black women. But I wonder if there are ways that you think we can practice this and what are some of the safe spaces where we can be vulnerable um, intellectually as well as individually maybe well I think spaces that we those sort of safe spaces I mean I don't know if I'd necessarily describe them as safe spaces because I don't think that can exist yet but I feel like sometimes we like for example a conversation like this, right? Like, it's something that I think, like, it's very generative, it's very useful, can't wait for the questions, yada, yada, yada. But ultimately, like, I feel these spaces exist in our everyday life too. Mm-hmm. You know, the group chats, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the DMs, the phone calls, like, every time, like, you're just in a space where you feel what you're saying won't be taken in bad faith and where there's care being practiced. And these spaces occur like throughout, like there is so many spaces like that in black life, especially in black women's life and sort of like black sociality in general. But I don't think you have to dress it up in a ribbon and bow and call it like, this is a black woman's safe space or this is a place for discussion. Because I feel like black people are always critically engaged. We can't really survive in this world without being critically engaged. We can't really survive in this world without having our feelers out and and really being sensitive to our surroundings, right? And that sensitivity breeds a certain level of criticality and discussion which I think we do on the daily like even the things our parents tell us right like they're telling us about the world when they tell us certain things right we just find out like a lot later that's what they really meant so I feel like um, sometimes the spaces are relegated to the academy which is not so good they're relegated to culture so that's why we have you know right now I mean actually we've been having it for decades but the idea of like you make music you make books you make this great now comment on this social cause now comment on this and it's just like you know there, there is no designated person that's an expert in these things like I mean even and I would say especially academics but It's open, like we're always having these conversations. Mm. What's spotlighted and what's highlighted, that's a different matter because that's something that's chosen externally, not always by us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But working class black women, particularly, I feel like they are, in my life, have been the most critically engaged people Mm -hmm. I've ever met. And the most, well, the smartest people I've ever met have been working class black women, full stop. Mm -hmm. So that's my, I guess, I mean, the closest I think, think I have to a safe space would be any space I build with everyone in my life. Mm. That's poetic as well. Wow. 
I think it's so important that you talk about Claudia Jones in the piece and name this black British feminist. Um, and so I wanted to pause on her and just ask how you came to her work and why she's important to you. Um, I came to Claudia Jones's work because I was just, um, I think a long time ago, I was just reading something about the Notting Hill Carnival and the mm -hmm. secret's history or something. And then it mentioned that it was founded by this woman. And then it also mentioned that she was um, an, a Trinidadian woman and that she'd been hounded out from the US and stuff like that. So I was like, oh, wow, this is a very interesting figure. And I live quite near Highgate, which is obviously where the cemetery where Karl Marx is um, buried. So I also read that she was buried to the left of Karl Marx. So she's even more left. So, um, <laughs> so I found that out and I was really intrigued by just, I mean, the first thing I kind of wanted to know was, okay, when she was kicked out of the US, my first thing was, okay, so how did she interact and sort of like with... British black people mm -hmm. and Caribbean population around that time. And also I was just very much interested in like why the American communist organizations and parties were more hospitable to her than the British ones. Because right. I was just trying to find out what is it about like British sort of left circles that is so anti-black women. Yeah. And I thought Claudia Jones was like really interesting figure. I was like, why is this country like, so anti-black women in these spaces mm. like specifically anti-black women i'm not talking about women of color here i'm talking yeah. about black women now we know right we know so <laughs> so i wanted to figure that out and it was crazy that this this person who had gone through this in like the 50s was a conduit through which i understood uh, my political moment mm. and also i was always adjacent to political organizing at that time so i was like just peeking there and thinking what's going on there let me read a bit about claudia jones's life because i feel like i could explain what i'm seeing right now but also in general i loved her, her example of internationalism yeah. because that her anti-capitalism and anti-imperialism um, is why she was such a threat mm. to the US government. Mm. It wasn't because she was advocating for a sort of a politics of reform mm. or a politics of incremental change. Mm -hmm. And it was very much because they saw her power within her circles, right? And the fact that she was somebody who intimately knew what black working class people were facing. I mean, her mother, she described her mother as somebody who had um, died after years and years of exhaustion from working as a garment worker. And obviously she was very diasporic as well in her example. She was a Caribbean woman who was also um, a child of Harlem mm -hmm. and somebody who had come over to the UK and built these sort of links and internationalist links. So she was somebody that I was really, the more I read about her, the more I felt like she represented um, a kind of politics that, that I, could, I could see myself mm. in. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot there to admire.